Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. A drink or something? Is that okay during? Do I have to push I don't want you relapsing on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could drink uh, water. We're live. I'm going to test this real quick. Hello, and thanks again for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is Stephanie Fox. Stephanie is the Director of Marketing and Business Development for Mountain's Edge Recovery, located in Uniondale, Pennsylvania. They are a partial hospitalization program. And we talk about that program today in depth and how she ended up in this role which the story starts in 2016, where she took her first position at a treatment center as the alumni coordinator, Uh, then quickly becoming a business development associate, Northeast Director of Marketing, and the Director of Marketing and Admissions for Just Believe Recovery Center, which ended in 2022. We talk about working in the field, self-care when working in the field, the turning point uh, that 12-step communities or recovery communities take once you make a solid and firm connection with one person to trust. We talk about grief and the draw to social work, which Stephanie has and has been working diligently and prolifically in this area in outreach. So let's meet Stephanie Fox. good okay we're here with stephanie fox stephanie what's your title up at uh mountain's edge what is mountain's edge sure so uh, my title there is director of marketing so i do community outreach essentially and mountain's edge is a male php it's a smaller facility 21 beds yeah php with sober living okay so where's uh what's a php So PHP stands for partial hospitalization program. Um, How I describe it is, you know, you do the 28 day detox, the 28 day program. That's usually the first step. PHP comes after that. And it's where you would kind of start putting into practice what you've learned those first 28 days. And so you've already been to detox. You've been to a a treatment center. We've talked about this on the show in the past, but I like to talk about it every time because it is the trend for treatment. And I I think some people will start to see detox, then PHP. Mm They'll start to almost see a 28-day program disappear for a lot of individuals. So where is Mountain's Edge again? So Mountain's Edge is in Uniondale. So Mm. it's up on Elk Mountain in Northeast PA. And it's a large property. Yeah. So we're set on a hundred acres. Um, it's a, it's a smaller property, but it's set on, on a lot of land. So it's on Elk Mountain. You kind of have the ski slopes in the backdrop and, um, we have three buildings on site. We're renovating a fourth. Um, we have a, so, so out of the three buildings, we have a sober living, we have a clinical building, and then we have our recreational slash group slash cafeteria building. That sounds nice. I've been there. It's it's very nice. It's it's cool because it's like an old Poconos resort that you, it's been converted. It is. Prior to us occupying it, it was a bed and breakfast kind of ski. So it has that ski lodge type of feel. Oh, you feel like you're in Germany. It's exactly. Really wild. Yeah. There's fireplaces in each room. Um, I don't. We we don't use them for the clients, but they they look nice. You know. Yeah. So, 
all male. Um, I have, I'm opening and I have an all male place. Mm-hmm. What is, how do you feel about gender separation? It's cause some places don't have it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, does it depend on the population? Like, how do you feel about separating the genders in a PHP scenario? I mean, I think it's a great idea because it takes away all distractions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in an all male setting, the guys can be there. They can focus on themselves, their recovery. Um, same thing. You know, if you have a female facility, they can feel safe and just kind of be able to share with their own gender, what they're going through without distractions of maybe the opposite sex. Evolution taking yeah. <laughs> over some game theory kind of rises up for competition. Yeah, it would be a distraction. I think it's a distraction in groups, especially for young, younger populations in their twenties. You know, you got a robust hormone uh, explosions <laughs> in your head. It's hard to not be competing, even mm-hmm. if nothing's happening, even if there's no sexual contact, your mind uh, just from the fantasy of, of dopamine or connection or courtship. I think a person could be lost through eight hours of the clinical day mm-hmm. with, I'm just, you know, brainstorming. Here. Sure. And it just makes, it makes our job a lot easier. Yeah. You know? to, to, to not have the possibility of this. Mm-hmm. Cause it's a longer, it's a longer stay. You're kind of, you're getting your feet in the ground and, and starting to practice some kind of sober life there. That's not, something you could practice in a 28 day place. That's right. So, you know, we asked for a 30 day commitment for people coming in, but you know, we really love when someone could do 90 days with us. So we go anywhere from 30 days. I mean, we've had clients stay 120 days or more. Yeah. Um, I think our average length of stay last time I checked was around 72 days, something like that. So, you know, obviously the longer somebody's there and in treatment with us and beginning to like, apply and practice their own individual recovery. The longer they have, the better chances they have of doing it when they, when they get out. Do you meet much resistance from insurance companies? You know, the back end of that, like, um, it seems like they're more open to this longer level of care from 30 to 90 days. But do you see insurances working with you? If a person's at 30 days, you initially, and, and they're like, maybe I should stay another two months. How does how does that work? So I know way more on the front end of things sure. than, than the back end. Um, Nobody likes the, the back end. Of things. Yeah, the the front end's pretty easy for yeah. me. the The back end gets tricky, and our you are and yeah. and kind of handle that. But from what I understand, most insurances are pretty good, pretty supportive with longer lengths of stay. That's obviously individualized because there's some insurances. It's like, look, you're getting three weeks, four weeks, um, and and that's it. And it's a hard cutoff regardless of what's going on with the client. But the cool thing about Mountain's Edge and our clinical director, Joe Kane, as you know, is he never bases somebody's clinical treatment upon insurance. So if insurance cuts somebody off at four weeks and they want to stay and need longer, they will always we will always keep them longer. So, so we don't discharge if someone's insurance cuts off, we don't then just say, okay, insurance is cut. You have to discharge tomorrow. We finish out their treatment plan and do ultimately what's best for the client. Yeah. Joe's Joe's strict like that. There's not many people left because I'm not saying it's bad or it's corrupt, Mm -hmm. but if you see a a, a treatment center's natural evolution, if it has its own closed network of care, say from detox you get a 28 day stay or you can go to a PHP. This could all be owned by the same company. Mm-hmm. And I just see what is the clinical director? Like what are the selections he's making for the next level of care? It's kind of been removed mm-hmm. um, or it's been removed just because of relationships. Um, so that's tough. Sometimes they're great relationships. Other times it's like uh, what, what clinical decision was being made here. And I know Joe, doesn't look at any of that and never has. Mm-hmm. He only looks at the clinical needs of that person and this is where they should go. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see that anymore. No, not, not as often. No, it's it's relationship based and I'm not saying it's bad, but sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's interesting. You guys accept Medicaid and Medicaid um, through County, right? Is, is that true? We, we are able to take Medicaid. We we do so on a limited basis. Limited basis, um, yeah. Yes, but we are able to accept some local. How about New York State? Um, we are we are 
working with them recently as yeah. well. Sa- same thing. We are doing that on a limited basis. We want to be able to offer treatment to people, you know, like really good, high quality treatment to people that may otherwise not have the option to. We don't want treatment centers like ours to only be available for people with really great insurance. Yeah. You know, with that being said, the reality of insurance and reimbursement, it is a reality. So where Medicaid, you know, we love and appreciate everything that they do. Sometimes the reimbursement is not enough to be able to provide the high quality treatment that we need to provide. That's our standard. So that's where the the limitations come in. Yeah. Um, Because, I mean, if you take typical Medicaid facilities, because reimbursement can be so low, Typically, you're seeing those facilities have high volume of clients and and they have to in order to be able to kind of survive and keep their door open. They have to take a lot of clients. And then that's where things happen, where people slip through the cracks, you know, because there's just so many. So we're able to take that, but do so on a a limited basis um, to be able to help that population, but also not. Not break our quality of treatment. Yeah. That's um, so it's kind of a balancing act up mm-hmm. there of how much private, but I know you guys, uh, Joe and Cindy, I mean, are true blue mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard to ignore the Medicaid population because it's the one in the most need mm-hmm. and it's hard to design a business that would succeed on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the facts. Right. Uh, without any kind of incentives, subsidies from federal, state, county government. But hopefully, you know, this year you'll see a lot of the opioid reward money kind of spread itself around for treatments all across the eastern seaboard here to start. So hopefully that goes to the Medicaid population. But I think it's interesting. I I, want to hear your kind of summary on this. Medicaid is not the population someone would assume if you had an idea of Medicaid from even 20 years ago. If you don't have a job for two weeks, you're on Medicaid. Essentially, yeah. So middle class people are Medicaid when it comes to the treatment world. Is that what, like, can you summarize if that's a true statement of what you were seeing? I I don't know if that's like an absolute. Sure. I mean, you know, typically... I'd say adults under the age of 26 are on their parents' insurance, right? Ideally, that's that's how it goes. And then, you know, after that, they're either getting into the workforce and getting their own job with their own benefits, or, you know, maybe if they're, you know, not doing well or mixed up, like in addiction, maybe they're getting Medicaid at that point. So it, it really just depends. Because we see, I mean, we see mainly private insurance at our facility, Um like I said, we'll deal with Medicaid, but it's very limited. So I don't work a whole lot with that population, but I, on a professional level, but on a, on a personal level and just out in the community doing outreach, I work with it all the time. Yeah. You know, well, another pause there, uh, outreach. It's a word that's used commonly with treatment centers. Um, what does it specifically mean? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better. But I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. And at Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self, and helping to make their community a better place. 
As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. I mean, for me, it means a whole, I don't, I don't know if there's an exact definition, but for me, it just, it means helping whoever needs help in my community, whoever I have reach in my corner of the world to be able to offer them whatever resources they need, regardless of where they're at, where they're from, what they have, what they don't have. So, you know, essentially anybody that knows me or people that know of me can come to me with any kind of assistance that they may need. And if I can't help them, I can at least get them pointed in the right direction and get them connected with the right people that can help them. Your phone's pretty much ringing every day. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's, let's go, let's personalize this. So you've been in outreach. How long? Like in these positions and working in treatment centers, Um, how did this start? Gosh, it's been in, in May, it was seven years. So, wow. you know, over seven, seven years, years now. Yeah. How long have you been sober? I've been sober eight years. Wow. Yeah. So wow. I, you I went right into it. Yeah. I started working into treatment. I was probably about nine months sober. I started kind of small part-time. BHT? Work. Like a, no, a, I didn't do BHT. I, I, um, I got in doing alumni work. So like say, connecting with our clients and then staying in touch with them after they discharge from treatment, keeping them supported, connected, doing alumni events. And that kind of branched me pretty quickly into the community outreach world because, you know, alumni events, community events, things yeah. like that. Um, and I became a resource for our alumni population, which cr- like it quickly grew I mean, it started, it was like hundreds and then it grew to, you know, a thousand and it was thousands. So I was help, essentially helping a lot of people and I became like a resource. Um, so that's what kind of connected me into outreach. Oh, that's wild. And w- was this for Just Believe yes. and Carbondale? Yep. It's funny you said that because I, I still post my podcast, <laughs> um, Just Believe's alumni page. Mm-hmm. And it's so active. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> there's hundreds and hundreds of people yeah. that still comment. And yeah. are you managing this page? Who's man- like, cause this I think is a I'm community. To be, yeah. yeah. It's lively. It's managing yeah. itself. It seems like people are constantly having a dialogue there because of how impactful mm-hmm. um, just believe was for them. Absolutely. And it was, and I, I actually got sober. I just believe I went yeah. through treatment there. So it was, it was a really, it was a really great program and it was life changing for me. How old were you? Oh gosh, I was 30. That's, yeah. That's wow. wild. Right? You got to hang up your guns at yeah. 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Steph, let's, let me now ask, where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Jersey city, New Jersey. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought you were Scranton. You know, I I mean, I spent most of my life in Scranton. Yeah. I'm a West Sider. Um, but Bleed yeah, blue. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I went to, um, yeah, I'm from Jersey City and uh, my family moved up to Scranton, PA. Never heard of it. Um, it was quite the culture shock moving here. And um, yeah, I've been here ever since. It took me a while to adjust, but now I love it. It's my hometown, you know. I did know that. I heard you speak a year ago. I forgot. Did you wear? Yeah, because I want I forget where I was. You were the speaker, and I'm trying to place it, and I can't remember. Um, uh, it'll come to me. Okay. But I, I, I may have talked to you after and said, uh, "What part of Jersey City?" I've lived in Jersey City. I lived in uh, Hamilton Park, Eighth mm-hmm. uh, and Cole Street, Jersey City Heights. Heights, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Heights. Mm-hmm. But, um, Newport Pavonia, that's all the path train stops. That's awesome. So do you remember, what, how old were you when you moved? Um, right around, gosh, it, I was probably maybe 12. It's, that, it's kind of all a blur. Really? Yeah, maybe yeah. 10, 12, something, something in there. Did it suck? Oh, my God, it was awful. 
It was terrible. I hated it. I, I cried every day. I didn't want to go to school. I hated it here. <laughs> I was like, I, I was just in such a shock, you know, and, um, especially when I moved up here, cause it was a long time ago. Now it's a lot different today than it was then. So even more so then I just really, I just really wasn't feeling it. Oh man. And how many siblings? Oh, uh, so I grew up me and three older sisters. And you were the youngest? Yeah, I'm the baby. Wow, okay. <laughs> so that's a tough move at 12, just having established going into adolescence. And that's all, that all collapses, everyone you know. Right, yep. Was there any venturing back to Jersey City for visits with family? How did, did you stay in touch with friends? Because that's a, that's a really distinct time to move at 12 years old. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually did. I was up here for a while, um with my mom and my sisters. And then my dad was still back in New Jersey at some point. Um, he was kind of like back and forth, right? Cause him and my mom were kind of going through a separation or whatever. So at one point I, I moved in back in with my dad in New Jersey and I stayed with him for a while. And my dad wound up getting sick at some point he was diagnosed with cancer. And then, um, you know, as he went through that process, I moved back with my mom and my sisters and in, in Scranton. Wow. That's, that's a lot of heavy stuff real yeah. quick. Mm -hmm. When did you find relief from that? Like well, I think honestly, that was when for me, cause my, my parents, you know, my, my dad was an alcoholic, very functioning, very loving guy, great guy, but definitely heavy drinker. It was just part of Irish Catholic. It was just part of his upbringing, very normal. And then my mom, same thing. My mom kind of grew up the same way and alcohol and, you know, partying was just a very regular thing. So I think for me, honestly, I, I didn't have any healthy, healthy coping skills at that age. I think when my father passed away, I was around 14 ish. And that's kind of when I started to segue into self-medication. You know, I started smoking pot, started drinking. And I think that's where I really started to find my relief, you know, and that's kind of where my, I guess you could say my addiction kind of started. Yeah. And saying it started right from the start. Um, what was the effect that you couldn't produce maybe in your own sober mind? Mm -hmm. You got a lot going on the move, grief, you know, you're the out group. Uh, you just got here from Scranton mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. Scranton from Jersey, Jersey city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> did you connect with anyone through pot? That was, how did you make your first friends in Scranton? Was it through the use of smoking and drinking? You know, I always made, I always made friends easily, like in internally, I didn't feel, you know, quite right. I always felt like anxious. I think, um, different, you know, just, off. Right. I think it was just that dis-ease, you know, but on the outside I, I made friends. My, my mom was very kind of dysfunctional. You know, we grew up in this very chaotic, very loving, very, you know, fun, but also very chaotic, you know, um, addiction and whatnot in the household. So we moved around a lot. Even when we got to Scranton, we moved, I moved all over. So essentially I had to be the new kid in school many, many times over and over again. So it was either like, I have to go through this, like, you know, horror every time of, you know, being the new kid or just kind of adjust and adapt. So I was able to like make friends and I kind of had friends essentially in every single different school in Scranton at, at the end. But it was, it was internally, I think with the, the lack of connection. And I think for me, it was just a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, just feeling different, feeling, you know, just, just maybe less than in a way, you know, coming from the background that I came from, um, just never quite felt the same as everybody else. That was my perception. Though, yeah, right. Sure. You know, so. Did, uh, alcohol provide any confidence in the time that you would be inebriated? Did you, you know, Fuck the rich kids. You're kind of the same. Like, I don't know. Give me bravado. Like I didn't feel that less than as much. Like I had some uh, moxie right. after I would drink. I think for me, it was just like everything kind of melted away. You know, like the, any, any fear, any anxiety, you know, the, the pain, the grief at that, at that time specifically, it just kind of took that away. And it was like, you know, just a really good buffer between me and, you know, the rest of the world. I thought, Yeah, you know, so 
It's a positive thing at first. Yeah. At first it was very positive. That's why my relationship with drugs and alcohol were very, very different than that of my friends at the time, you know, yeah. cause for me it was more, and I didn't know this at the time either. Right. This is like after many, many years of, you know, treatment, recovery, kind of looking back, dissecting all that. But at the time I didn't know it, but essentially it was, it was a solution for me. It kind of fixed all my problems, you know, and it enabled me to just, you know, be at ease with myself, my family, be okay with the world around me. And, and, and honestly fun, you know, I had, I had a lot of fun when I was, when I was a teenager, you know, there were no consequences at that time. Um, Even though my, my drinking was always a little bit, I think different than those around me. I, you know, it, it was all fun and games. It was all, it was all fun. So did what, how was it that uh, you entered your twenties? Did you go to a treatment center yet? When's the first time you had to, you got confronted by addiction, addiction itself being the problem where you had to go to treatment? Well, I would say probably things progressed. I think when I was about 19, I, I went into the hospital for some, it wasn't major, but I, I had something going on with me. I went into the hospital. I was there for a couple of days and then I wound up getting put on pain medication. So what, what kind of was a party thing, you know, it was like ecstasy pot, you know, like it was more of a party fun thing. Yeah, then social, there's yeah, a social was, aspect of ecstasy, which is, uh, will always stain my brain forever. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a social aspect to that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when I got introduced to painkillers, you know, and I, w- I was sent home with the prescription and like tons of refills, I didn't, ne- I didn't need any of it, but you know, they were very heavy on, you know, that at the time. So, without even knowing it, I started getting hooked on opiates at that time. And then things kind of really progressed from there and got serious from there. What would you say, how would you describe the connection with the opiates uh, in the first two months of using it? What was it doing that could be described differently from alcohol, MDMA, marijuana, all these social kind of drugs, but opioids treat pain. Mm -hmm. what was happening that was different with the use of those? Well, I think, I think it was just, um, I could do it. I could do it each day. Like, you know, where, where it was partying, it was like, I have to wait till Friday, Saturday. I have to have friends around like, you know, where, where opiates, it was like, I had a prescription. I, I was to take them, you know, however many times a day, each day. So I could just do that throughout my day. And so I felt better and I, and I felt like I was able to kind of do more and I don't know. I just felt more clear headed. I just felt better. Right. So like physically and mentally. And so like, that was great. It went from, you know, maybe partying on the weekends or whatever to now, like I'm able to take this, um, pill that doesn't, doesn't necessarily make me out of it, like say alcohol and some of these other party drugs, but it's just something that I can use to maintenance myself through each day. Wow. You know? So daily use, like how long would it be before you had a habit and a habit being (laughs) that it had withdrawal symptoms if you didn't use? Pretty, I mean, pretty quickly. That was probably like 18, 19 years old. And I think, I think by the by the time I was like at the end of 19 or 20, I was in my first treatment center. Um, and I went kind of against my will, like my family who, who, by the way, was also very dysfunctional and, and also partying. And, you know, they had like this kind of intervention with me and saying like, you're out of control. You need to go to treatment. Um, which was like, great. You know, like, did you think you were just in a weird dream? Like if people just, your family confronted you about going to treatment? I mean, I mean, I had family members that went to treatment. So it just kind of seemed like, okay, this is, I guess what we do. Um, so I just went with it. My mom said, look, this is what you're doing. This is where you're going. And I just, you know, I just went with it. So I wound up in treatment. I had no idea kind of what I was doing there. had no concept of like steps or recovery. I did not want to be sober. I, you know, I didn't really think I had a problem. Um, but shortly after, you know, I, I wound up going again, um, not too much longer. And then I started to 
to feel like this is something that I can't stop on my own. You know? quickly. You yeah, it, ha- it happened very quickly. It progressed very quickly for me because I started to, you know, with opiates, there is withdrawal. So it's, it's like, if you're doing, if you're doing that regularly, you, you need to continue to keep doing that. Oh, yeah. And I kind of didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't really know any better. You know, no one used opiates in my family. So, you know, and that's also why I was like sent to treatment. Cause it's like, Oh my gosh, this was, like, this yeah, is a big deal. This you know? is against the norms of addiction right. in, in your family. Yeah. I, I, that's understandable. What, were you surprised when you felt withdrawal? Do you remember uh, the I, first I, time you experienced withdrawal? I remember just like I remember taking my first drink and just like I remember taking my first opiate. I remember that exact moment where I thought I've crossed the line. I've crossed the line here into addiction that I'm not going to be able to get back from, or I'm going to have a really hard time coming back from. I, I, in that moment, I felt my own powerlessness and thinking, wow, this thing really has a grip on me and a hold on me and I, and I'm in trouble. Wow. I kind of want to describe that. So at first your addiction is almost supportive of a coping mechanism that you you described wasn't there. And then there's a point with opioids where you, you cross a line you just described where you don't have will cannot operate. You're, not only are you physically going through withdrawal, you have emotional withdrawal, mm-hmm. but even if you want it to stop and, and I mean, probability is just stacking against you that you could do this. Mm-hmm. So you knew it was addiction. Yeah, I knew because you know, it was, it was in my family. Right. And I remember thinking with like, say my mom, for example, I remember thinking like, you know, why can't you just knock that off? Why can't you just stop? I mean, you know, all, all of those things, when you, when you kind of watch someone you love go through the struggle of addiction and the kind of Jekyll and Hyde stuff and the ups and downs. Um, so I had seen that my whole life and then I literally experienced it. And I was like, and all that stuff came flooding back to me. Like, wow, this is what they went through. This is exactly why they couldn't stop. And and now like I'm at this point. Um, and it was really scary because I had never made a choice that was not my choice. And now I was kind of, it felt like I had no choice. Like my will was gone and this is something that I continue, like I needed to continue to do, or I was going to be sick. I was going to be ill. There's a strange beauty in that uh, if, especially if you survive it and could look back to lose agency or watch it crumble. Like where was agency to begin with? Did, did, did I, was I able to make choices prior to this? Mm-hmm. But this, this is right in your face. I can't stop. A lot of people don't get that, uh, circumstance to challenge not only their personality, their idea of self, where it begins, where it ends. Mm-hmm to not have control over something you're doing every day and will being opposed to it, it it could wake you up to a a fundamental thing about life that just, I was missing and I could hear it in you. So you got eight years from there until 30. What the hell? how How did you do the next eight years with? Well, I mean, the next, you know, the next few years were probably the toughest and things got pretty bad. Um, life just felt really low, very dark because the next few years were about me now trying to stop using, but really struggling to stop. So it's like going to treatment. It's, it's really now wanting to, but not knowing how to, and then having to learn that process, which for me was a process. It wasn't like I went to treatment, I learned it and that was it. It was, it was a process for me to learn how to get sober, how to live sober. Um, you know, at one point I think I was 21. I, it was like one of my bouts getting sober and I had like 60 days sober. And then my, my mom passed away. Um, she actually passed away from an overdose and I was completely devastated. And at 60 days sober, I still didn't have the coping skills. And so like, I went back to what I always did and what always worked for me only now, or only then it, it didn't work anymore. It didn't take away the pain. There was nothing, there was no amount of anything that I could do that was going to take that pain and that loss away from me. And then on top of it, 
I'm feeling the guilt of shame of like living a lifestyle that I don't want to live that is kind of going against my morals, it's going against my values and and really my will. So it was kind of like hell, you know, that it was just like torture and it was just a very dark and bad time in my life. And um, I finally went back into treatment. I went to Clearbrook at the time and, um, you know, they, they suggested, you know, and I was kind of like at the end and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I keep trying. I can't succeed. Like, please help me kind of thing. I was very desperate and I was in a lot of pain. And, um, they said, basically what you need to do is do something after this. You can't just do these 28 days and then go back out to wherever you're from and are going to like live a different life. You need to learn how to live a different life and, and really like have support to help you through all of this. So that's what I did. They suggested I go to at the time it was a, it was a sober house, but it was really like a sober, like really supportive, sober living environment. And, um, it's, it's a weird turnaround because the woman that actually owned this sober house owns the treatment center that I work for today. Cindy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they sent me, and at first I was like, you know, I, I don't know. This sounds scary. Like going to live with like strange people yeah. in, in a place of all of all places. It was called Carbondale. Now, I had never been to Carbondale, didn't know what Carbondale <laughs> from was from Scranton. I was like, I I was like out of my mind. So, you know, they're telling me about this place and like where it is. And I'm like, what other choice do I really have? I really didn't want to. But I was so desperate that I was willing to do whatever it took. Wow. So, you know, she agreed to kind of allow me to come there and, you know, and, and stay there in the sober living. And that's kind of really where my recovery journey started, you know? So from there, a lot, a lot had happened there, but that's when I really had my first like group of time sober. I, you know, I wound up getting a good chunk of a few years um, sober from there. And I, I kind of had, you know, some struggles and some ups and downs, but for, for the most part, I put together some time and I really learned how to live sober and I turned my life around and, um, I wound up, um, having my son, Elijah, who's 14 today. And, um, and that honestly changed everything for me. You know, it became, now this isn't something that I want to do anymore. This is something that I absolutely have to do. I have to do this. I have to do this for him. Um, and so it was a game changer. Everything changed. So it was like, you know, I went back to school, you know, and just started living my life sober. I started from the ground up and I, I dealt with a lot of the grief. Um, I learned how to, how to live and do basic things sober that I really didn't know how to, how to do last time, you know? So yeah, I really kind of started my life from there, you know? You say you, you dealt with the grief. Do you feel you had to have a second kind of morning uh, when you were sober of your your parents? Yeah, absolutely. Because I had been running, you know, like you feel things when you're using and drinking, you know, even if there's bouts of sobriety, there's, for me, there's some kind of disconnect to my feelings. You know, there's, there's some kind of blockage there. And so when I got sober, it was like, and this is, I think, why it's so hard for people to get and stay sober is because everything flooded back. It's like everything that I had been running from for like the last, you know, five, 10 years, everything just came up. And so it was a very emotional, it was a very <laughs> painful, and it was like, I needed a lot of patience, a lot of love and a lot of care. And and luckily, God put someone in my life that that could be that for me. And there was multiple women in my life that really held my hand through all of that and walked me through step-by-step all of it. So it was, it was, it was a real blessing and it was, it was a process. It took a while, but yeah, it was like everything had happened all over again, you know? So this time in this, this bout, it sounds like the most pronounced thing that was different was connection with not only one woman, multiple women. Mm -hmm. How would you describe those friendships being this, you know, this is the most substantive thing about recovery, connecting with another person. What was it that let you, you let yourself trust them? Mm-hmm. Was it the desperation? Was it a mixture of who the person was? How would you describe connecting with, with other women in recovery? I think the main thing was desperation. I, I'm stubborn. I'm hard headed. I almost never, 
do anything unless I have used up every option that I can think of to fix it myself. Right. So it, for me, it was pain. It was desperation. And then also I think God putting the right people in my life. Cause had that person been somebody else, the outcome, this wouldn't be the outcome, you know? So I think it was a mixture, but I absolutely had to be desperate and in a place where I was in enough pain to be willing to do what I needed to do. Otherwise I wouldn't have picked up the phone and called these women from AA and started making connections with them. I wouldn't have done that if I felt okay, you know? So. So from that period of sobriety, you've weathered a couple storms. Mm -hmm. Um, What is it about the low lows or the high highs now being substantially different that you don't find any reason to, to use drugs in the midst of, um, you know, the hardships of life that may have came before and after recovery. What's different? Why, why, why not duck and run during certain tragedies or. Well, I, the, the main reason for me was my son, you know, I, I couldn't do that. Um, it wasn't an option for me at that time. And I understand for people that sometimes that's not enough. And he certainly didn't keep me sober, but he was the biggest motivation for me where there were absolutely days that I would have given up. There would have days that I definitely would have duck and ran, Yeah, but I just, I couldn't because what about him? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Now, if my, maybe my parents were alive and were supportive parents and can take care of him, maybe it would have been different, but it was just me. Like he only had me. So I had to do the right thing for him and I had to give him the life that I never had. I had to do that. Wasn't an option not to. Mm -hmm. What you describe is pretty common to uh, the idea of recovery, but you, you really articulated right to your son there's the reason to give up self. This, this self is the one that's experiencing pain, the less than the anxiety and to have your focus of the point of view of your son. I mean, self just crumbles in your hand. There, there is no need for yourself or anything that, that uh, I think that's real when people Mm -hmm. could really tap into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then I state, and I do believe you can get sober for yourself, right? Some people have to get sober just for themselves, but I really do believe you can get sober for your kids or your loved ones or the judge or who, you know, fill in the blank. You can absolutely get sober for blank. It's just, that can't keep you sober forever. Eventually that's going to, that's going to run out. So I, I got sober for my son essentially, but then as I, started to build a life and really do a lot of work on myself, you know, essentially I I stayed sober for me, you know, I relate to exactly what you're saying. When I hear, um, two things that make me just feel totally gross. I'm like, Oh, what are you even mean? You don't even know what you're saying. You're just repeating things. Like you could be in a 12 step community. Someone says, the first demands I have to make is to myself. I'm like barf. <laughs> I think you're the problem. I don't think you need to make amends just yet. <laughs> and then the second is uh, you can only get sober for yourself. Well, what does that fucking mean? Right. It doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, you know, and especially when you're in this lexicon and the 12 step world, self is the problem. You're mm-hmm. confronting that. Um, is there a self? That even is substantial. That's just not a persona that mm-hmm. I just either the world manufactured for me from pain, trauma. Just, um, why can't I pick a new self? And this is what the, the steps are inviting. I did the same thing. I could not limp back into recovery and say, oh, I'm doing this for myself. Mm-hmm. That, that, <laughs> that part of Joe, I just love. That's going to have a great life. <laughs> if you left things up to what I considered self, I mean, I'm just thinking of comfort. And shit. I don't, mm-hmm. I had to think of other people. Um, you know, I was motivated by de- de- the dead. Uh, uh, I lost mm-hmm. my sister in the midst of that year g- getting sober. I thought of her off and, mm-hmm. and in the context of this, she's out of time. She, she ran out of time. I didn't. I, what am I fucking doing? Mm-hmm. This is not the life you said it earlier. And I connected really with it. I am not living up to the morals. I just want, mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. even, I'm such a hypocrite. 
that connected with me, Steph. I, I think I have to pick other people at first. I don't know what people are talking about when they say that word. Yeah. Now, later on, I have a new sense of self mm-hmm. and I, you know, I care about it because I found myself in other people. Right. I can't just have a party with myself and say, oh, you're going to get sober and make amends to myself. Mm-hmm. Get, like, get back, man. You got to make amends to other people. That's how you forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I really related to that. So what do you do for self-care? Because you work a lot. You've been in the industry mm-hmm. for a while and you're really good at what you do. I see you everywhere. And I, 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 I've gotten to know you more over the last year. And, um, I'm, I'm inspired and, and would call you for advice. Uh, but what do you do to take care of yourself outside of work? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And it's, it's really important too. And I think, and I'll just preface it by saying this. I think I had to learn how to do this because, you know, really when I, when I first got going in my career, you could say in this field, you know, you, you can burn yourself out. You can give so much of yourself. So it was something that I, I had to learn how to do. Um, the biggest thing is like boundaries. You know, I, I had to learn how to set boundaries for myself with, with anybody, you know, but especially, you know, there had to be a line with work where I have, okay, you know, I do everything I can, um, for work, but then I also have to make sure I'm taking care of myself because if I don't take care of myself, I'm not going to be my best self there. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm very, I think the biggest thing is, you know, being active in recovery, you know, um, I have to, I have to go to 12 step meetings. I, I find a lot of relief there. Um, fellowship, friends, connection, fun. You know, I think those are, those are the biggest things that I need. I need to be able to have fun. I need to be able to kind of put away all of the, cause it could be working in the field is so rewarding and fulfilling, but it could also be very dark because a lot of people don't make it. A lot of people are not willing to get help. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who were, you know, wanting to get sober or on their way to treatment. And then, you know, something happens, they use, they passed away. It, it just, it can be very, it could be very draining um, because it's heartbreaking, you know, at the same time. So taking care of myself in my recovery, I think is, is the biggest thing. Um, you know, staying connected with the women, he- healthy women who have something in their life that I want, you know, um, people that are, you know, just ha- you can tell they have a connection. They have a connection with some kind of higher power, you know, and they just, um, have a really good spirit about them. You know, staying connected with women like that really do a lot for me. Um, and then there's all the other little things that I do for self-care. Like, you know, my house has a, I was inherited, uh, a, a huge flower garden. Um, the woman that owned the house prior was a master gardener. So I've been finding myself like, even though it's work and it, and it becomes very overwhelming, like going out and doing work in the garden. This sounds so corny. I can't believe I'm saying this, but like going out and doing work, it gets me present and in the moment. And it brings me right to where I am, like right where my feet stand and just brings me right there. And that I found is a form of self-care. And, you know, sometimes just like sitting on the porch, right? I have like this beautiful view of the sunset sitting on my front porch and just going out there and just like eating an ice cream, watching the sunset for 10, 15 minutes. Just like, you know, it's just like a breath of fresh air and it just kind of calms me. You the know? phone's not involved in Yeah, this. yeah, not at all. And it's it's just all of the, I think self-care is a lot of little things for me. Um, and of course, like I love to shop, right? And like get my nails done <laughs> and like all that stuff, which I love. Um, but like really taking care of my spirit, meditation, mindfulness. Um, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big supporter of like outside help, like therapy, things like that have been huge in my life. So just all things like that. It's just a mixture of, of all of that. That's great. Um, because people who aren't in recovery, I kind of, that's what the question was for instance, uh, that your obligations professionally, uh, is fulfilling and enjoying uh, as they could be, uh, are, are separate from your obligations to 12 step community and your, your self care. Um, and if that line isn't balanced, um, like you, you said, burnout is high. Mm-hmm. It's a really high rate. Now you're in outreach and I, 
you know, I think burnout's there too, for sure. Mm-hmm. But definitely in counselors, you just oh, gosh, see, yeah. you know, I've seen people in recovery be wonderful counselors, but not take care of their own sobriety. And then it just, it eventually will bleed into work. Sure. Or the people not in recovery who are empaths, mm-hmm. that unregulated regulated empathy will, will hurt you. It will kill you. For sure. <laughs> um, so... It's good to hear that I, I knew you had self-care because you're, you're not <laughs> insane, right? but it's hard. That's mm-hmm. hard to manage. So you have a good group of people that uh, keep that, you know, front of mind for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mindfulness. You said something. I just wanted to uh, kind of poke around at um, the garden. I know. <laughs> so you have this master Zen garden you inherited. Oh gosh. And. What is it about a garden that you feel present? Like you said, okay, I'm there. Because mm-hmm. that means even, even with work, if I've, you know, I think most people have this. I have it. The whole day could go by and what, I might feel like I've arrived only in one moment. It could mm-hmm. be like at six, I'll be right. staring at something. I'm like, where have I been? Right. Like my head, like, <laughs> right. There's, so there's these moments that I think Buddhists would call it non-duality, like a, a modern Buddhist, where you have these moments where you're aware of existence, not from a sense of self. And what that means is I've, I've, I'm in this body. I know life is just experience. It's just this flat screen of imagery hitting me. And what, this is me. This is what I'm calling me. Mm-hmm. I've been here 45 years. So those, those moments. Mm-hmm. What is it about your garden did you make that a safe place, a sanctuary to have those moments there? Like, how does that happen? Cause most people have it in nature. I, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts are of why that would happen there. Honestly, for me, no, I didn't, I didn't make it a safe place. I, I, I've never had anything to do with any kind of gardening. Um, but I was forced to, I was forced to, cause now like, okay, own this property, have to take care of it. So I was forced to go out there and do it. And I'll tell you a lot of times it's just, it's just hard work and I'm out there and I'm frustrated and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is so much work. This is overwhelming. So it's not even that I went into it, enjoying it. It It's still a lot of times feels like work, but it, I'm present in the moment I'm forced to be. So I have to pay attention to exactly what's in front of me and what I'm doing. And it forces me to, to just be right there. And that I enjoy. Does that make sense? It does. I I like that. It's a a new flow state. You get to learn something new. Mm -hmm. It's a responsibility to take care of beauty. Mm -hmm. You you recognize it as beauty. Okay. This is my charge now. Um, I think that's the the trade-off of of great gardening. You're maintaining (laughs) beauty or, or that, you know, the uglies will come out. Yeah, the weeds exactly. Take and I have that too, but it usually, usually looks better than when I start. So that's a good, sometimes I screw up and I'm like, oh, well, have you had any do? gardening mentors or like any resources? <laughs> I, you got to YouTube some gardening moves. I have the, the woman um, that previously owned the house. She actually um, has been nice enough to come by and kind of help, you know, show things and, you know, but it's just, she's your Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> if you want to call it that, I, it's not, it's not my thing. I don't think it'll ever be my thing, but it does, it does cause me to be mindful and present and in the moment. And I appreciate it for that. And I appreciate all the beauty that's there. And I, and I feel really blessed. Um, honestly, any, anything with the house, I'm, I just feel blessed and I feel grateful to be able to have this, take care of it. Um, you know, and, and there are other things too. Like I, I love going to the beach, being at the ocean, anything yeah. by water, nature, going for walks, stuff like that, I think is also like, because it, it forces you to just be right where you're at. It's weird. The proximity of the beach. Uh, I know it sounds cliche for me that has an effect being by water, mm-hmm. just proximity of the water is just calming for me. Um, yeah. that's what my name means of water. Enough about me. <laughs> I don't, um, this idea of mindfulness, I, I, it's not like uh, generic. And I think 80 years ago, the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous knew that 
Mm-hmm. They, they, they were suggesting new members do it twice a day. And they were giving some broad descriptions of it mm-hmm. morning and night. Um, what, what, what are the rituals that you keep daily? Um, mm-hmm. Be it if they're in your head, are they scripts? Are they meditations or prayers that mm-hmm. acknowledge? Do you acknowledge every day of substance use disorder? I I certainly try to. Yeah, yeah, it's hard not to. It's hard not to when you when you work in the field and then you're part of a recovery program. But what more importantly, I like to acknowledge is um, a connection with the higher power. You know, yeah. just kind of like even. And on most days I try to make a little bit of time, even if it's, you know, five or 10 minutes, but even on those days where it's just crazy and rushed and, you know, chaotic, um, even just taking a moment just to acknowledge that today is a gift. Um, me waking up today is a gift. My, you know, just everything around me is a blessing just to take that moment and just like kind of say thank you. And, help me to do the best I can today. Cause like on my own, I'll, I'll screw everything up. You know, I, I have to kind of keep myself focused on this kind of like moving forward, this positive plane. Cause if not by default, you know, I'll get negative, I'll get whatever. So, you know, I have to kind of keep myself pointed forward if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I think like having a relationship you know, having a relationship with a higher power is super important to me. It's probably the most important thing in my life um, because without that, everything else isn't possible because that's where I get my spirit. That's where I get my power, my strength, whether it's patience, guidance, wisdom, whatever. That's where I get that from. Now, do I always choose to do the right thing with it? Absolutely not. Many times a day I don't, but, you know, ideally that's what I keep having to strive for, you yeah. know? Well. I'm glad you came on today because I, I always like what you have to say. And anytime I see you, I try to, to talk to you because I, I admire your recovery because I, I know a bit about your personal life and, and how you overcome it and what resource you would be not only to people in Scranton that are in recovery saying, I can't be sober because this happened mm-hmm. or I can't right. recover. Right. Um, I don't know who would say that around you. <laughs> I feel like that would be great. <laughs> and that's great because that's how vibrant our community is uh, in recovery. But I just had to think about it. You told your story in your recovery in this kind of phase. It was like you needed help. Your help came from connecting with women. Then it came to a higher sense of, of, of power, source, mm-hmm. divinity. And this made you almost have a social calling to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so the need was well past you immediately. It was almost like a social definition of now I'm going to provide the morals that you've lost at the end of addiction. Mm-hmm. You've made a life uh, living up to them and committing to other people and service to other people. Uh, I'm always motivated by that. That's what I want. And I, I get it from looking at people like you and Joe. And uh, so um, I, I wanted to thank you for inspiring me every, every time I, I see you in the last two years. Um, is there anything I should have asked that I, I didn't ask? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think we covered a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think some women will connect to this. Um, so I mean, you'll have to come back and then we could talk about Joe more. Yeah, for sure. I yeah. Love that. <laughs> yeah. Someone really has to find some dirt on this guy. I don't know. We'll get him. I don't think it's there. I don't know. He's a great guy. He's a saint. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, and engineering company 570Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right.
Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.